So I'm happy to uh, reconvene us um, to have both food and food for thought. Um, I do want to remind you of something that uh, Jeffrey Hunker mentioned, which is that part of the website we've created for this symposium is a blog in which we would be uh, eager, yay, anxious to see uh, discussions and questions that arise from today's conversations continue. Um, I think each of both Jeffrey's presentation and the first panel left people with a lot of questions and ideas that they want to discuss more, and um, it would be great to see that website become a forum for that. The, the, the URL is simply, there's no triple W, it's, the website is cybersecurity community, as one word, dot org. And uh, I guess Paul Rosenzweig asked me, you know, what am I hoping for out of this conference besides uh, interesting papers in a published volume? And I guess it's cybersecurity community. That would be, um, that's, that's our hope. Um, our keynoter for this hour is uh, Mr. Robert Butler, who's our Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy. Um, he supports the Secretary of Defense and other senior DOD leaders by formulating, recommending, integrating, and implementing policies and strategies to improve the department's cyber posture. And this encompasses department policy relating to requirements, capability development, operations, declaratory policy, employment, and international cooperation or agreements. Bob earlier served as an account executive with Computer Sciences Corporation, managing defense intelligence business with combatant commando and military services. He's a former member of the Senior Executive Service and recently was the executive, excuse me, the Associate Director for the Joint Information Operations Warfare Command uh, at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. He is a retired U.S. Army officer. From December 1979 to August 2005, he served in a variety of intelligence and communications computer systems positions, both in the continental U.S. and in Europe at, at every level, the detachment, squadron, group, major command, unified command, headquarters, and secretary of, and office of the Secretary of Defense levels. So he really brings to us a wealth of experience uh, in both technology and policy, in both the public sector and the private sector, and both the military and civilian sides of government. So we, we've, we've talked about the value of being multidisciplinary, uh, and Bob embodies all of that. He's ideally suited to give us a briefing on how the Department of Defense is currently approaching uh, issues of cybersecurity and cyber policy. I'm delighted to introduce Bob Butler. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here at Ohio State, Buckeye Land. Um, I uh, appreciate the gracious introduction by Peter. Um, just one correction, uh, U.S. Air Force retired. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I find uh, really invigorating as I go out uh, and speak, whether it's on cyber policy or where we are with the defense strategy, is just the, uh, um, the activity with regards to people thinking through national security problems. I was at Georgetown earlier this week with Jay and uh, saw it on campus there. I just finished uh, this morning with uh, a whole bunch of ROTC students. A lot of excitement there, and uh, just listening to this panel that just took place, uh, a lot of great, great discussion and uh, divergent views, but uh, that's what we need, and that's what I would ask you to continue to do on behalf of not only the Department of Defense, but the United States government, is to continue uh, debating and discussing these points because it's absolutely critical 
that we get uh, we build a framework that's comprehensive and is right uh, to help lead the nation. So what I'd like to do is uh, kind of picking up on Peter's introduction, spend about uh, 15 or 20 minutes uh, describing our thinking within the Department of Defense um, and working through um, where we've been in, the, in our journey to think through cyber policy and strategy, uh, give you some food for thought, as Peter uh, alluded to, um, and then answer your questions as best I can. So I've been in the job about 20 months. Uh, I came in initially as uh, both uh, working space and cyber. Cyber got pretty busy, and so I stayed focused in the cyber realm. I will tell you, within the department, uh, uh, our Deputy Secretary Bill Lynn, as you probably know, has been leading the charge uh, from the policy and strategy standpoint. So I spent a lot of time with him uh, working through these types of issues. And operationally, as Mark mentioned, uh, General Alexander has been uh, really at the forefront of helping us to, to move forward in time. Let me start by just uh, describing the strategic context which we've come to um, and kind of build on some of the points from the uh, previous panel. Um, when we started thinking through uh, and reviewing our strategies and policies within the department, which was directed to us by the Secretary back in June of 2009 as we were getting ready to stand up Cyber Command, we thought through a technology scan. Where was the environment today? Not only in terms of internet statistics and internet usage and, and where those were, what was going on with regards to the advancement of technology in the commercial world with mobile mixed media and cloud computing, but thinking where the Department of Defense had been, where it is, and where it's going. Uh, you saw some of that reflected in the Quadrennial Defense Review and the Defense Strategy, uh, where there was a clear statement of principle that we needed to operate effectively in cyberspace. And that became kind of the banner um, and the charge to us to begin this deep dive. When you look at our enterprise today within the department, uh, 15,000 networks, about 7 million devices. When I say devices, it's not all the Blackberries. It's really the desktops and the servers um, spread across uh, many, many installations around the world. Uh, 21 satellite gateways, uh, it's a fairly large complex. Um, when you think about what is going on inside of those networks, um, you see that operations, whether we're talking about stability operations or conflict operations, Afghanistan, Libya, or humanitarian relief uh, operations uh, in uh, hurricane-stricken arenas or in, uh, in Japan as we try to provide support to the Japanese people, um, it is, it is really built on a foundation of uh, information communications and technology. Um, in, in other words, it has become the core fabric of how we do uh, all of our defense missions today, whether they be in war fighting, intelligence, business, what have you. Uh, certainly I experienced that firsthand as the Director of Intelligence at Transportation Command during Operation Enduring Freedom, where I watched e-commerce transactions driving force flow around the world. Um, that had been the trend, that is the trend that's continuing into the future. So that's one element of the equation as we think about strategic context. Another element of the equation is what is going on by others as they look at the Department of Defense, they look at national security systems, and they look at the United States uh, moving forward in time. We see our systems probed and scanned millions of times a day. Um, we see that uh, part of this is uh, due to uh, interest and curiosity. Part of it is due to 
maybe some uh, other uh, desires that are not so, um, so benevolent. And as we think about that, we have to necessarily think about an evolving threat. Uh, Susan and others went through uh, different aspects of the threat. We certainly have been informed by those perspectives uh, with regards to actors. Let me give you a sense of, uh, of where we are in the thinking of not just the actors um, and the models that have been discussed, but uh, the sense of trend, uh, the sense of where we're going and what we need to prepare for. Because at the, at the heart and soul of the defense strategy, it's one that deals with four Ps, right? The idea of prevailing in today's conflict, being able to prevent any kind of conflict tomorrow, being prepared to defeat adversaries um, that may pop up uh, from out of nowhere, and then preserving the all-volunteer force. So we're about ensuring that we look at the world where it is today and trying as best we can to look at frameworks that will help us today and tomorrow. So in terms of the threat trends in cyberspace, um, we certainly have seen uh, what others have talked about with regards to exploitation, uh, which has led to uh, significant challenges with loss of intellectual property. Um, you've seen that recently with uh, the announcements on the commercial side by RSA. RSA is just one. Uh, I think there's more to come as we kind of look at how much activity is going on in cyberspace today where the conflict is occurring. Um, we also see a trend, as mentioned by uh, the panel, with regards to disruption services. Um, here we've seen not only uh, um, Estonia, but Georgia and others, uh, where we potentially kind of escalate up the ladder a little bit in terms of uh, malicious activity, where operational activities within the Department of Defense could potentially be interrupted and, uh, and therefore in today's environment not meet mission need. Uh, probably the, the most um, uh, concern for us today is where that may lead us to the next level of destructive activity. Um, and as we think about what others are doing in terms of developing tool sets, uh, we're concerned that capabilities are being developed and that as you align capabilities with intent and look at our own vulnerabilities, uh, we'll, we'll need to do more. Um, so as we think about that, um, our, our biggest concerns, I think, begin to stem by looking at the convergence of, across those levels. So nation states are the most capable, but in a sense, um, today at least, um, unless it's a rogue state, um, you really find that there's uh, an implied deterrent through our military power that we project and other kinds of power that we project. Um, when you think about the groups that were described in the previous panel, um, you find that they're not as capable, uh, but you do find some of them, um, I think Mark brought up the CT examples, you see others with intent, and that if given or if, uh, or if capabilities acquired could be very problematic. So we are concerned about looking at the seams and the convergence of threat and uh, capability and intent. And, uh, and looking at those seams from the vantage point of what criminal groups will do um, as we look at collusion among the different actors, uh, looking at what poor operational security will do in terms of something getting out into the wild uh, and how that might impact the military and national security operations. That's, that kind of led us to a, a point in time where we thought through um, where we had been with our strategy, our doctrinal development, and where we needed to be. 
So one strategic implication that comes out of that type of analysis as we work through it was really the idea that there is the presumption of breach continuously within the networks. We had never really affirmatively said that before. Well, that has some fairly significant implications. When you now change your assumption set to say that there will always be problems inside of your network, there will always be challenges inside of your network, you now quickly move into a mode of continuous risk mitigation. And, and as Mark and others have said, uh, you need to build much greater situational awareness to help you with that challenge. Um, you need to learn how to build different kinds of resiliency constructs, how to operate in degraded environments. So that was kind of the logic train that took us down a path um, towards uh, determining five strategic initiatives, uh, which were previewed by uh, Deputy Secretary Bill Lynn in a foreign affairs article last year with regards to how we would need to change within the department. The first, uh, much to Martin's chagrin, was to treat cyberspace as an operational domain, um, a domain that would help us, as Marcus said, to organize, train, and equip, uh, but also to think through what it means to operate in cyberspace, to get a construct around um, a way that the military could think about it in light of these strategic implications, and to create the connective tissue within the Department of Defense uh, that allows us to take the next step. So what were some of those next steps? We set up Cyber Command last year. Um, we uh, stood up uh, not only Cyber Command, but over the last uh, 15 months, we've stood up uh, service presentations to Cyber Command. Uh, we have gone ahead and begun to normalize now what it means to do command and control operations in cyberspace. Um, we have spent a lot of time doing tabletops and exercises and doing some significant planning in that arena. It's more than just an organization, right? It's, it's really about getting our arms around what in defense parlance we call DOTMIL-P, the doctrine, the organization, the training, personnel, material, and equipment. And inside of that space, there's a huge um, void that needed to be filled with regards to planning and policies. So we are doing more and more now in the area of red teaming to help us understand what this new threat is about and what we need to do to operate effectively in cyberspace. Policy development is, uh, is ongoing and being informed by a lot of lawyers, a lot of very talented lawyers, but, lawyers. but I will tell you that we need uh, a, a marriage between the, the policy operations and really the legal, uh, the best legal minds to help us as we think about such a fluid environment that we're involved with in cyberspace. Um, so policy development takes us from what do you do with social networking websites? Um, to how we think about deterrence. Um, and what are the implications with regards to what we should say and what we shouldn't say? How should we develop capabilities? Who should we partner with? Um, what are the implications of all of those things? That work is ongoing. Uh, within the, uh, the second strategic initiative, we really talked uh, about, okay, beyond getting our doctrine together, getting our organization together, we need to move in a direction that builds upon the work of the past, but actually catapults us from an operational concept forward. So new uh, operating concepts in terms of defense. So we, we've talked a little bit about um, cyber hygiene, right? And so that's what we are doing today with uh, everything from education and training to, so to uh, software and hardware configurations, auditing, um, 
what we're doing out to the walls, to the IDSs, uh, intrusion detection systems, uh, and protection systems, building layers of defense that helps us, one, to understand what's going on in the networks, but also then taking risk mitigation within the networks. Building beyond that now, and one of the great uh, reasons for why we set up Cyber Command the way we set it up, and dual-hatting General Keith Alexander as both the Director of the National Security Agency and Cyber Command, was to build an active defense construct where we take advantage of commercial sensing as well as intelligence sensing to help us understand what's coming at us. Uh, as we discussed before in venues like this, um, actions don't always require net speed response, but some do, and the, the way to build situational awareness actually does require uh, the ability to understand information fairly quickly, especially when it's not traditional signature-based information. So we're working uh, to build out that concept of, of active defense. Uh, some examples were mentioned this morning. I would say this is a great fertile field for lawyers, for future lawyers and current lawyers, um, helping us to think through um, and to work the most um, uh, comprehensive analysis, both in policy and, and law, with regards to how we move forward with active defense. Um, and inside this arena, um, it, is, um, it is really not only looking at the, the history and the precedents that we have in law, but really thinking about what kinds of effects we want to achieve that helps to, to marry this discussion and, again, create that connective tissue. Within that second pillar, we also talk about other concepts. Sometimes um, um, because of um, uh, folks are so busy in, in other arenas, we don't talk a lot about them, but resiliency becomes a huge part of new defense operating concepts. So how do you do redundancy, not only in terms of just building new networks and new servers and configurations, but how do you do it virtually with multipath routing? How do you work through taking the results of red teaming activities and automatically put that into your equation in tactics, techniques, and procedures? How do you do clean slate initiatives? We've got DARPA uh, working through a lot of different uh, uh, applied research work for us in terms of clean slate. You know, basically, how do you do secure communications on untrusted devices? Um, and that kind of sets a stage for uh, building that type of activity into others. And so the third and the fourth pillars of the new defense strategy that's coming out really deal a lot with partnerships. So I've talked a lot first about what I would call the first eye, uh, internal to the department. The other three eyes that I'll talk about really are the partnerships. So at one level, it's the interagency. Um, and uh, when we talk about the interagency, it's not just one department or the White House. It's all of it. Um, it is truly, as I, th I think it was Mark said, team sport. Um, when we go ahead and operate um, as a Department of Defense, uh, we are not just on the dot mill networks. Uh, again, I'll go back to my experience during Operation Enduring Freedom where we were pushing uh, force flow out to Afghanistan. To do that, I mean, you're moving through the ports of Karachi, you're moving to Karshi Khanabad, you're doing lots of transload operations, you're working with a lot of commercial partners. Um, and so you're working across .gov, you're working across .com to create velocity and distribution of forces uh, and to create high mission assurance um, to, defeat, uh, to, to, to defeat an enemy. So inside that space, um, we have, as has been discussed, established uh, some new types of partnerships and enhanced other partnerships. 
uh, certainly a very significant one, uh, is the one with the Department of Homeland Security. Um, I spent a lot of time <laughs> with my counterparts in DHS. Um, we have stood up, uh, as uh, was mentioned, um, a new MOA signed by the two secretaries last fall, a joint coordination element, but beyond the joint coordination element, really have put in place a variety of, of people and concepts now that are helping us to align in the best way possible, I think, capabilities with the missions that both departments have. Um, so as we kind of move forward in time, there will be a continued focus on how we can best synchronize our planning for national cyber incident response, how do we do more in the area of preventive activity, how do we do more in the area of configuration management of joint capabilities, whether it's in active defense or clean slate or other kind of piloting activities. Um, and there's certainly a mind meld that kind of runs through the departments now, uh, which I think has, has improved immensely over the last year uh, from the deputy secretaries on down into the staffs and into the operational entities. Uh, it's not just with the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we are continuing to work with FBI and others in terms of rapid information sharing. Again, another policy legal discussion. would ask for your assistance as we kind of work through this. Um, but how do we effectively do a better job of ensuring that everyone sees the information at the same time? Going back to Susan's point, if you don't know if it's a criminal activity, if you don't know if it's a national security incident, you need the best minds on the problem right away together to begin the analysis, the forensics on it, as well as to get to the attribution. Um, so we're spending a lot of energy with, uh, with lots of different departments to, to work our way through that. Um, and, you, and you've already seen some strategies outlined by the White House. More will come, which will bring further focus into these efforts. In the area of the, what I would call the third eye, internal to the department, interagency, the third eye, industry, uh, we have been spending a lot of energy beginning as far back, I think, uh, with new models, as far back as 2007. 2007, um, as a result of what we were seeing on the nets, we set up a, uh, a defense industrial base information sharing and cybersecurity program. It was a pilot. Uh, grew to about 35 companies where we are sharing information um, uh, with regards to threats, unclassified signature information, and uh, building towards um, a, a way of providing more and more protection to um, those that we depend upon within the Department of Defense to carry out our missions. Um, framework agreements continuously reviewed uh, by our lawyers um, within the Department of Defense as we've evolved in cyber and for a lot of other reasons we now have a full-blown privacy civil liberties organization. Michael Rayhauser, our lawyer, in charge of that really is, uh, is got his hands full in terms of working through to make sure that we meet all the needs with regards to compliance and, and also concerns that others might have in this arena. We have built on uh, the pilot programs to uh, help us understand what maybe we didn't understand with regards to the private sector as they push back and provide us information. And so it has been, I think, a good uh, give and take as we move forward in time. We continue to look at other models to help us. Um, Enduring Security Framework was mentioned, a very effective model under a CPAC arrangement, Critical Infrastructure Advisory Council, a DHS uh, construct to allow us to do risk mitigation. There are other models out there that we, we are taking a look at and would ask that you uh, assess and help us to understand 
the effectiveness of those tools. There are private sector models uh, that actually help to solve uh, some of the problems and challenges we've talked about that really haven't been fully leveraged. Um, think about uh, what ISPs could do together, uh, what they have done together with regards to uh, seeing a problem and doing something about it, whether it's a proliferation of bad botnets or, or others. And you have groups like the North American Network Operators Groups that, that take on those kinds of, of uh, challenges. So industry is a huge effort. Within industry, of course, um, there are many threads of issues um, that take us down paths with not only threat today, but potentially where threat may evolve tomorrow. Supply chain is a big issue, um, and there is a lot of interest uh, with regards to working that. So those are all kind of put into our, what we call our third strategic initiative as we're thinking about the extension of these new operating concepts uh, to support defense missions. Again, our focus is defense, and what do we need to do to increase uh, the mission assurance for defense uh, task operations? The fourth uh, initiative deals with the international community. And as you've seen in the press, we've been spending a lot of time with our closest allies. Our deputy has been over to uh, Brussels a couple of times uh, I've been with them and uh, as we've been working with NATO uh, on uh, how to bring cyber as a mainstream activity into emerging challenges and doing something about it, not just writing policy, but doing something about it with regards to the, its networks um, and helping uh, partner nations uh, with, their, with their networks, primarily focused on the national infrastructure support uh, to NATO C2 operations. Um, it does take us into a path when, as we think about shared awareness, shared warning, collective security, it takes us down a path where we get into the discussion that Jay was bringing up on norms um, and getting agreement with, uh, with partners on what those norms are. Some naturally bridge it to customary international law, others don't. Um, but uh, it starts with a dialogue, a new kind of dialogue, and I'm sure you'll hear about more of that today with East-West Institute, uh, which we, uh, uh, we have been tracking and following, we've had participants in, and other kinds of uh, track activities. So we have, in uh, again, national security parlance, we have tracks that are government to government, what we call 1.0 tracks. We have other tracks that mix uh, government, academics, private sector together, uh, because we believe that's the best way to, to inform how we move forward with our strategy. In the fifth area, and I, I would say the foundational a foundational piece of the strategy is how do we begin to take technology uh, which continues to advance, driven out of the private sector, and leverage that technology with a mindset of continuous innovation and risk mitigation, which, uh, again, the department has not really looked at before uh, as, a, uh, as something to do in parallel. We are doing, we are changing the cultural mindset to make sure that that's how we're thinking about things as we move forward in time. Uh, inside of that element uh, and core to not only this pillar but the other four is what, what people uh, are getting today and what people need for tomorrow. So building the cyber workforce that allows the department to do all of these things is absolutely critical. And this takes us into the realm of thinking about what we're doing now with education and training, but as I was discussing with the cadets this morning uh, with recruiting and accessions, it also gets us into the realm of retention um, and how do we begin to build a next-gen workforce, how do we begin to take the talent 
across from private sector to public sector. I'm kind of an anomaly within the building, right, within the Pentagon. Uh, retired uh, officer, uh, some government service, a uh, couple of years in the private sector, back to government service. Are there ways that we can do more of that um, to help share in this, as Peter mentioned, this multidisciplinary approach? Um, how do we then move into the arena of taking and integrating, using uh, technology and uh, new concepts to help us with rapidly moving capability forward, moving those new operating concepts out. So the idea of ranges, virtual ranges comes into this. So it's ha using ranges to rapidly test and acquire capabilities to push that out, uh, not only in terms of operations, but education and training. Um, how do you use partners inside those ranges? That is all part of that fifth pillar. Um, I just end, I know I've run a little bit long here, I'll just end by saying that this is where we are on the journey. Um, it is not a, a, an end point. Um, that's something that uh, certainly our leadership emphasizes over and over again, and I will emphasize. It's a living document. Uh, it's our framework today. It's the framework that will be driving our guidance, our planning and programming guidance as we move forward in time. Uh, but it is informed by the, this kind of discussion. So I'm grateful for the invitation today and uh, stand ready to answer any questions that you might have. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Hi, Bob. Jay Healy from uh, Cyber Complex Studies Association. Uh, since we're at a law school, um, I want to ask a law-related question. Yep. I saw a quote from General Jumper from the uh, late 1990s saying that um, any time that they wanted to use a cyber attack yep. against a target, um, it would take forever to go back to Washington, D.C. and check with the lawyers and find out it would be okay. Um, so curious, are you still seeing that as an issue, and how do you see lawyers, you know, I mean, how do you see lawyers as part of the issue of yeah. cyber attack and cyber defense? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So let me take it from a couple of different vantage points. Um, you probably know, based on our evolution uh, since 9-11, um, and really even going back into Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, because of the, uh, the Im immense scrutiny on targeting, kinetic targeting, um, every JTF commander, every uh, air component, land component commander has a lawyer right by his or her side. Um, and uh, before decisions are made, they are heavily engaged with getting legal advice to ensure that the effects are, are not only uh, what we deem them to be, but also to understand collateral effects and to understand the legal implications. Um, in, the, in the world of non-kinetics and specifically in cyber, um, what we find in both planning and operations, uh, again, that, that uh, necessary collaboration with uh, the policy, legal, and operations community. And to answer Jay's question directly with regards to where we've been on the journey and where we are today, um, I will tell you that I think, um, especially in the, t the time that I've been back in the Pentagon this go, this is my what, fourth, fourth go at the Pentagon, um, I have found, uh, one, a desire to get to the same goal uh, much more quickly, um, which in the past we always haven't had the same goal, whether you're talking within the department or outside the department. Focused at the onset with regards to trying to move us towards a common understanding of the effect that we want. Um, and as we do that, people coming to the table with one asking the question about situational awareness, 
and then sharing that picture. And the challenge, of course, in cyber with a dynamic picture changing all the time is how do we continuously ensure that the picture is fresh? And then bringing their capabilities, their authorities to the table to help us move forward in time. Is it perfect? No. Um, does it still take a while? Yes. Um, we need to do more in that area. And uh, again, I would uh, ask uh, both the lawyers and folks that are, uh, that are not lawyers to think cross-disciplinary about what's the best way that we, we should be able to proceed. Um, I find that if we can bring people together and focus and get everybody focused on the same problem set, you can make a lot of progress. One last point, I mean, just to kind of reinforce it, um, when I was in charge of intelligence at Transportation Command, uh, if we ever got into an issue where people were starting to move in different directions, I put a picture of Osama bin Laden on the wall. I said, that's the focus. We all play, we all get on that ball. Um, and that's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do as we continue to move forward in, in cyberspace. Uh, so we have defensive activities that we're trying to work through, whether it be in a reactive mode, like in a WikiLeaks example, or as we think ahead about how we should plan to configure our networks in the future. Let's all get, let's all get agreement on the common objective and move forward. Yeah, hey, Nobody else is going to jump up. Oh, okay. I, I have yeah. to. Uh, I, yeah. I can't resist. So okay. um, the theme of March, Mark did start by saying uh, cybersecurity is a team sport, and you emphasized the same thing. And um, as you went through the team and Mark went through the team, I didn't hear the words State Department. Oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah. and, and yeah. there's a rumor that you're, you're not always friendly. So I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm eager to hear yeah, that rumor yeah. dispel. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, that was an oversight on my, my part. I, I work with um, all of the departments uh, to include our friends on the eco-trade side. Uh, I was with USTR and Commerce and Treasury yesterday. But State Department, uh, for sure. Uh, all of our international discussion is built inside of a framework that really stems from, you know, State Department's mission uh, for the United States government as being the, uh, the lead foreign affairs engagement body within the, within the United States. Um, Chris Painter has just moved over from the White House to be the State Department Coordinator. He and I are good friends. Um, work hand in glove with regards to thinking through how do we build relationships with allies, how do we build relationships with uh, treaty countries, um, how do we work through engagement activities with international organizations. Um, I will tell you one of the challenges is resources, um, uh, even within the Department of Defense to get uh, to ensure that we are working in the most proactive and comprehensive way inside of that. Um, but, with, but there is a very close partnership um, with, uh, with State Department now, especially after this reorganization underneath uh, Chris. Uh, prior to that, uh, we had, um, I think, very good relationships across State Department activities that were involved with cyber. There were some over on the INR side, some in the Powell Mill Bureau, some in the Eco Bureau. Uh, but the Department of Defense worked across all of those, whether it was an issue, again, with the ITU, an issue with a particular country, um, ways that we would try to build defense-to-defense -defense cooperation, um, lots of important activities going on. And I don't think there's a lot of space between, again, objectives with regards to how the State Department is looking at things vis-a-vis -vis how we're looking at things. We also understand the complementary um, uh, capabilities that we bring behind uh, what State Department might lead in terms of engagement. 
uh, one of the things that I think you, you, you probably would surmise is uh, when we get into discussions with other countries and other international organizations, um, they bring problems and they bring questions and they bring requests. And um, in order for us to engage in effective ways to help us with this collective security and risk mitigation, capabilities, responses to questions uh, need to be brought forward. A lot of that does come from the Department of Defense working with the State Department to ensure that we have the right kind of um, mindset and we're building the right types of agreements. Yep. Oh, hi, Jeffrey Hunker. Hey, um, Jeffrey. Yep. Since we're talking about the international and the State Department, yep. my understanding is that the Russians have uh, put on the table uh, proposals for a multinational uh, cyber arms control agreement or framework. And I was wondering if you could just talk about uh, the uh, USG position on that and your perspectives in terms of any sort of framework uh, agreement. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was actually involved back in the late 90s when the Russians first put that on the table on the Department of Defense. Um, we have made progress in that arena. Um, I think uh, most of you should be aware that We've spent the last couple of years uh, through the United Nations uh, working through a governmental group of experts that has helped to uh, build a dialogue. Um, as we've moved forward in time, um, our position is that uh, it, is not, it is not the right approach to go ahead and try to think about things in, with regards to arms control and treaty verification. but. Uh, but actually see much more value in what was discussed in the previous panels, and that is the idea of building norms um, and finding ways to come to agreement and understanding uh, with regards to uh, values and principles in cyberspace. Uh, so whether it's uh, looking at um, application of law or looking at just the, a particular principle, um, you know, commercial IP theft is bad, as an example. Um, working through issues that allow us to have a dialogue that then steps us to uh, at least the, an understanding, if not an agreement, of how we think about things. So more to follow as we kind of press forward in this arena, both multilaterally um, and over time um, as we move forward on the bilateral side. Anything else? Yep, go ahead. Hi, I'm Christian Rick from Standard Embassy. Yeah. Uh, Christian, how are you? I have one question regarding the sort of international engagement. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, President Obama mm -hmm. in Lisbon uh, stated, stated something to the tune of uh, NATO would need a cyber shield, just like, uh, just like uh, NATO is going ahead with its uh, missile defense program that, uh, that uh, NATO needs a cyber yeah. shield. Yeah. So my question is, uh, so far, I've not found a single person in D.C. who actually knows what this shield is going to be. Uh, will the completion of your cyber defense strategy and the approach of uh, next summit uh, mm -hmm. help to clarify your position on that and mm -hmm. uh, how, how fast will we move forward? No, great question. Okay. So coming out of Lisbon, uh, all 28 nations actually recognize cyber as an issue 
and that we needed to do something about it. Um, since then, uh, underneath the uh, um, you know, Secretary General Rasmussen's direction with Ambassador Clody, uh, kind of taken the lead as the assistant for emerging challenges, uh, nations have been working together to uh, look at ways to create priorities for cyber within NATO. And as I mentioned, one of the big emphasis points has been looking at what should be done to, uh, first of all, take care of the cyber hygiene within NATO networks. Um, and so that's uh, the military networks that come from the, the nation's contributions to NATO. Um, and as we protect that more and more in, with better cyber hygiene, in a sense you're creating a shield, a virtual cyber shield. Um, the analogies, as Martin and others have said, you know, begin to break down at points. But the construct is we need to do more with protection. Um, we need to do more to ensure that the risks are minimized so they're not shared by many others. And that's the, uh, the concept behind where I think the, the NATO priorities are going. Um, as we move forward in time, uh, the goal still is to not only get the political and political military guidance out, but to build an action plan. Uh, nations have committed uh, not only in terms of words, but in action and some resourcing to get to that goal. Uh, there should be more announced uh, as we move forward to the June ministerial uh, as, it relates to, as it relates to cyber. More questions, yep. be both in the panel I chaired earlier and this one <clears throat> uh, how to defend the networks that the uh, military is using yep. to communicate and operate and I'm wondering whether um, you see a way to protect the networks that the civilian society depends on and whether the mindset here should be to protect military on military activities sort of a notion of war that militaries yep. just fight militaries yep. Or to think about this as one of the roles of the national security establishment in the United States is actually to protect the country mm -hmm. uh, and protect its civilian networks. And I'm curious in two fronts what you think could be done on that second front. Maybe nothing. Maybe it's like missile defense and it's really not possible to do defense in this domain any longer. And secondly, <clears throat> do you sense any demand from the civilian side for any help? Uh, all of your examples where you're looking for them to best practice. I'm wondering mm -hmm. whether Google, Microsoft, mm -hmm. Apple, do they need you? Or frankly, uh, do any of the banks need you? Mm -hmm. Or is essentially, you know, basically we're building a, an infrastructure of defense for defense department, so to speak, itself. And the rest of society doesn't really need it very much, or does it? So let me step back and make sure that uh, I'm clear on uh, what I described in that third initiative. That really is about extending uh, military defense capabilities out to the private sector and out to our interagency partners um, um, and trying to figure out what's the best way to offer that um, as we move forward in time. Uh, there are some capabilities that I think uh, can help better protect us not only in terms of hygiene um, and, and driving up to higher levels of standards and hygiene, but also in this area of active defense. Um, what we're doing um, in just looking at how we further protect activities outside the Department of Defense is through this new MOA with the Department of Homeland Security and DHS's authorities under Homeland Security Directives um, is really beginning a, a much broader dialogue with 
the other government agencies as well as the private sector. Um, and as we build that dialogue, um, what we're finding is a, a good two-way street in terms of sharing information and understanding. Um, we do have, a, a, you know, basically a, an analog in cyber today, which we're building upon uh, through the National Cyber Incident Response Plan, where people can request of the Department of Defense support and help and assistance. Uh, not too much unlike DISCA, you know, the Defense Support to Civil Affairs, Civil Activities, uh, to help not only with regards to um, uh, traditional physical activities, but in the cyber world, technical assistance. Um, so as we work our way through that, uh, under the, uh, the really the leadership of the Department of Homeland Security, which has the mission, um, we are testing uh, that um, on a regular basis um, as we collaborate with the U.S. CERT. Uh, again, we have many centers involved with sharing information today. We are looking at ways that we can be proactive in ensuring that there is an inventory of capabilities available that people can understand what's out there. And then as requests are made back to the department, uh, we're looking for ways, again, to share what we have um, as the private sector um, and DHS and other government agencies share what they have. And so I think we're just at the, uh, what I would call the beginning stages of this with regards to uh, robust um, exchange of information, understanding, building that capabilities kind of inventory, and then now looking at ways to apply that. So I, like Defense Cyber 3.0, our new strategy that's coming out, I would say the National Cyber Incident Response Plan has been a great framework that will continue to evolve over time that allows us then to do exactly what you're talking about. Hi. Hi. Uh, how do you go about um, protecting the assets that are essential for military operations, like, for example, the power plant that yeah. powers the base, without um, mission creep, without? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great question. So um, where we have identified dependencies that take us out into the commercial world, um, what we try to do is, if we have contractual relationships, uh, we work through the contractual relationships at one level. Where it's not a contractual relationship, where it's a shared uh, support, um, and we know that we potentially have a threat that we need to deal with, we go to resiliency concepts, okay? So you build in redundancy, in other words, you build in alt routing, you build in um, other ways to, in the, in the grid case, islanding, and, and ways that we can find um, opportunities to create higher levels of assurance within the structure. Anything else? So I, I'm struck by, I mean, this has been, strikes me as a really valuable conversation. And you've mentioned a couple of times <clears throat> wanting, you know, more input from the yeah. legal community, more. Yeah. I'm wondering how, given the complexity of this topic yep. and how much of it obviously operates with some measure of confidentiality, what you think the potential is for the Department of the Government actually to build public understanding and trust? And, and I was very struck by, you know, you're mentioning, you know, putting Osama on the wall. So it's sort of harder to put, you know, yeah. a bunch of Russian hackers with a botnet on the wall. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. what, what is it that is going to build public understanding, trust, 
and support for the kind of resources you're going to need going forward? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, how do you build advocacy in this uh, in this area when you don't? When it's very first of all, it is complex and technical, and um, there is not uh, uniform awareness across um, many sectors within America. Um, I think it's it's multi-layered, and we work very closely with the Department of Homeland Security to help them and help us collectively educate. Um, we mentioned the threat. That's one example. How do you translate the threat to uh, uh, to, to somebody here in Columbus, Ohio? You know, that's um, you know watching a Buckeyes game. Uh, you, you really begin to start talking about what is very very personal to them, like PII. Um, when we look at what's going on in terms of identity theft, intellectual property theft, you can quickly move from individuals to libraries to businesses and begin to grab and, and get consensus around we, we should be doing something about it. Now, that doesn't take away from all the other challenges. You know, we're, we're all uh, resource constrained. We're going through some financially difficult times right now. But it starts at that level. And then I think it's an appeal to a common cause, right? Um, so. Um, people start talking to each other across groups. Um, DHS has been very good at trying to get a lot of these things going. Uh, within uh, the military, we do it through our guard folks, right? We have folks here in the Ohio Guard um, that um, actually support the, uh, the state and support local communities and uh, actually know the federal mission very, very well, have different types of authorities, and we use our guard folks in cyber today. We have. Uh, Units that we have built that uh, take advantage at one level of an understanding of cyber. So we, we co-locate units, Air National Guard units at Redmond, Washington, where there's Microsoft. We co-locate them in, in Delaware, where there's a great understanding of the financial services industry. Um, and those folks actually help provide another element of the education campaign. Um, the other thing is doing these kinds of venues. Um, I find that... Um, we come out of these venues, people write papers, but people also then form teams, they collaborate, and they actually help us to build new strategies for how to communicate. Um, and it's not just within Columbus, Ohio, and it's not just within the United States, it's in Estonia, right? It's, it's out internationally. Um, the, uh, the other vehicle is uh, that, that I find um, that has been very, very helpful is the intelligence community, as you saw, uh, recently with what we did with Buckshot Yankee is we're declassifying. We're declassifying information, uh, figuring out different ways to work through uh, protection of information from a national security standpoint. Um, and as we work our way through that, uh, that unclassified information really becomes great input into telling the story. Yeah, okay, so Buckshot Yankee 2008. Um, we had a situation where uh, a thumb drive was put in a, uh, in a system that shouldn't have been uh, inserted into a system. And as we uh, began to see what happened when that thumb drive was inserted into the system, there was a uh, virus that was launched um, that created a lot of havoc on our networks. It was a watershed event for the Department of Defense uh, because it, it woke us up to the implications of not only um, cyber hygiene and the potential for an insider threat to cause havoc on a massive scale, but helped us to think through some of the strategic implications that I talked about with regards to presumption of breach and what we would have to do about it. That actually got us moving in the direction of thinking 
towards a cyber command and towards a new defense cyber strategy. And now thinking more about cyber as something that um, we have to find ways to better uh, understand, uh, think through better configuration management, create greater situational awareness, understand how it connects across other domains and how, uh, and how we need to begin to move towards a different kind of resourcing concept, new operating concepts, and what have you. So really a fairly significant event in terms of our journey with regards to setting up uh, what we're doing today in cyber. Anything else? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't want to run too long, Peter. No, no. So, no, um, uh, for years in the, in the nuclear domain, we had a declaratory deterrence yes. policy, um, which, which goes by the name Mutually Assured Destruction, and essentially said, you nuke New York, we're going to nuke Moscow. Yeah. And the big changes there were things like expanding that umbrella and saying, we include London in, in, in our yeah. protective umbrella. Yeah. Um, does the United States need a declaratory policy of deterrence in cyberspace? And if so, given the difficulties in attribution, or what would it look like? And if not, uh, then uh, how is it that we're going to stop or, or attempt to deter people from uh, exploiting us, whether it's an attack or an espionage, or the, the differences are pretty minimal. So, free, free, free flow, pick, pick any piece of that. Simple question. Martin, you gonna start with that one, or are you? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, with regards to deterrence, it's a, it's a major element within the strategy in terms of how to think about, one, deterring bad behavior in cyberspace, and how to use cyber to actually look at a cross-domain concept for, for deterrence, right? So two sides of the coin. Um, in terms of building blocks, I think it starts with uh, first a common understanding uh, of what I just talked about with regards to risk, uh, building from risk into what we want to do about risk, um, and trying to get to, at one level, norms, right? Customary international law or <laughs> principles that uh, we can all agree to. Um, as you've mentioned, I mean, there was a lot of thinking that went into uh, the nuclear deterrence model. Um, as we think through cyber, um, one of the things that is, um, is helping us in one sense is the fact that there is a lot of uncertainty. It sounds kind of awkward to say this, but uh, because there is uncertainty, uh, we do believe that, as I mentioned earlier, nation states that may have capabilities uh, would be reluctant to use those capabilities based on some of the other capabilities that we could bring outside of the cyber domain in terms of ad adverse effects to the United States. However, as I also mentioned, the equation is changing. The real challenge is to think about, yes, we need to think about nation states. We need to think about collective security and ways that we can uh, bridge the gaps and to ensure that there are words and actions that can back up the principles. But, uh, but probably one of the biggest concerns is what about the non-nation states, right? <laughs> so how do you deter a terrorist? How do you deter a criminal group? How do you deter these self-organizing groups? Um, and again, I would, uh, I would say that we're not there yet. Um, we would, uh, again, uh, appreciate the, the input and thoughts from, uh, from this body as well as other bodies as we move forward in time. Um, part of what you then have to think about as we're working through it is what do you do in the here and now space? And that gets to some of these other operating concepts and resiliency and how to operate in degraded environments. 
So we are definitely on a journey. I will not say we're at an end point for sure. Um, and we are, what we are making, I think, good progress as we move forward with our partnerships in getting to some basic understanding uh, with regards to um, norms and principles as the foundational step to go, go to the next level. Yep. Hello. Um, I have kind of two questions. One is a terminology question. You keep yeah. saying um, cyber hygiene. Yeah, yeah. And I have no idea what that means. Okay, great. And uh, my other question is if you're like, you know, Joe Smith walking down the street, how do you learn about like what cybersecurity is? You know, is there like a helpful government website that says, this is what you should yeah. know as a responsible citizen yeah. and like what you should be doing yeah. just in your life? Great questions, great questions. So, uh, you know, part of the challenge, I think it's not just a defense challenge, but it's also a challenge within the, the national security community and probably in U.S. government speak is the terms that we use. Hygiene is a, uh, is a um, cyber hygiene is something we take out of the health hygiene world and it's basically those capabilities whether it's software hardware the technology side education and training with the people side that we use to uh, provide for the basic health of a of a cyber system some people today use the term cyber ecosystem right um, and that has a certain meaning as well for us, it's, it, it actually then translates to that antivirus software that you're running on your desktop, you know, from McAfee or Symantec. It translates to uh, what you do with passwords. Um, it translates to how you configure your system in terms of the secure, you know, if you've got, if you've got a, a wireless router in your house, do you actually use a web encryption key or not? All of that is part of cyber hygiene. It's understanding what you can do from a health perspective analogy to ensure that your system is secure. In terms of the education, uh, great question. Um, we have some things in the Department of Defense, but I think Michelle's here. We could talk a little bit later on about what DHS is doing with regards to education in this arena. DHS has some very good uh, website materials. Um, they have a, a fairly significant investment in an education campaign to help people. Um, I would also um, have you go over to Commerce's uh, website, uh, the National Institute for Standards and Technology has some really good um, simple tutorials in that arena. Um, and I think uh, if you go to the vendor sites and you look at their help sites, uh, again, the antivirus vendors, they actually have some very good things. Microsoft has a, has a really good tutorial uh, that would help you understand the basics of what you should be doing with regards to not only cyber hygiene, but helping to explain uh, a little bit more about the technology and the implications of the technology. You know, a hot issue right now, or has been for the last year or so, is privacy within these uh, social networking websites. Um, I'm constantly working with my kids on this with regards to privacy controls on Facebook and, and understanding the, the threads between security and privacy in that arena. Um, Facebook and Twitter um, have done a great job especially over the last year or so, in really pushing a lot of education to folks, uh, both not only, not only within the National Security Committee, but writ large to the entire base of users to help people understand what privacy controls are and how that can help with their own security. Anything else? Bob, I think we're going to let, let set you free. All right. All right. <laughs> Thank All you right. so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.